Lord, I know sometimes it's easy to forget that worshiping you is so much more than song, especially when it's so much fun to sing your praises and declare our surrender to you. We recognize that the truest acts of worship always seem to involve the word yes to your will, to your word. And I just pray, Lord, that we would recognize the worship that we will be displaying as we seek, Lord, to apply your scripture to our lives. I pray, Lord, that we would be open and available tonight. You would captivate us in your word and then we'd have so much fun in it. And that we would truly tonight be impacted permanently by your word tonight. So please have your way. Bring life, bring encouragement, bring strength, bring clarity, bring resolution tonight, I pray. And bring clarity in areas, Lord, where perhaps there's been confusion. But tonight, may we walk out of here more in love with you, more cemented in our conviction to serve you, more devoted to you, and more completely resolved to follow you with all that we are. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority. Our context for 1 Samuel 7 is that Israel has uh, sort of stepping out of the time of the judges. So we're on the other side of 1000 B.C., between 1000 and 1100 B.C. We are in Israel at this time. And we start to see this perennial enemy, the Philistines, show their head. We see it much like we would our natural reliance that we would call the flesh nature as defined in Galatians. The Philistines always seem to be attacking at a time where we either find ourselves in complete just surrendering to our own lusts and desires and selfish ambitions, or there's times where we make the decision to get right. Now, it's important to recognize that they sort of struck and the battle lines were brought out where Israel was at a place that the scripture called here in 1 Samuel, Ebenezer. And Ezer, Ezer, like Eliezer, which means God is our help, Ebenezer means our rock of help. The interesting thing about it is that though it had been stated prior, now we see 20 years later in our text where it gets its name from. And it's important to recognize it is a monument of victory. And that is important because when we were to read the story, the first time through, it's sort of like seeing a Marvel movie that's, you know, first of all, 75 hours long, and there's these little things that keep sticking in that you don't see until their second or third viewing. Well, the more that you read through Scripture, the more you start to realize, wow, God listed this early as a place that was a monument of victory before the victory, actually at a time where they were going to be defeated. But ultimately, they would find themselves in victory, and it was there that they would get the name. They would give it the name, Our Rock of Help, at that place of victory here in our chapter, chapter 7. So please understand something here. God already knows this victory. And now we've read it through more than once. We kind of get the idea, okay, I kind of see where it's going to go. But the first time we start to read through Scripture, if this is your first time in 1 Samuel 7, by the way, welcome to 1 Samuel 7, if it is your first time, though, then it, it's, you kind of go, oh, wow, I kind of get how this plays out. The battle was drawn. They were at Ebenezer, but the, uh, the Philistines were at a place called Aphek. And Aphek means my strength or my, my resolve is kind of the idea. And the two places engaged in battle, Israel is losing. And as Israel is losing, they say, well, we know what the problem is. We need to get the ark that it 
might save us. And there becomes our problem. And you see already the natural digression to a place of total backslide. And it usually happens by just taking your eyes off the Lord and starting to find something tangible, something you can touch and feel. And, and it's scary because in the beginning, to be honest, it can be something so churchish or Christianish, if you will. It's just not Christ that you don't even realize how far you're turning. But if, you're the, if you've ever driven, well, you kind of know you don't have to turn the wheel far to find yourself off the road if you're not careful. And, and you start diverting from Christ to Christianish things, and you find yourself on your way really to a total head-on collision with destruction. And that's what happens, is, is ultimately uh, the Philistines... Uh, dominate Israel one more time here. And as they dominate Israel, now the ark is also taken. And God's got lessons to teach both. He's going to teach the believer and the unbeliever, if you will, the follower, the people claiming God and those who weren't claiming him. The people who weren't, God, of course, smites with rats and and emrods, with tumors, hemorrhoids. I mean, it's a pretty rough situation, no doubt, for them. But ultimately, understand what God is doing in all of that, is that God is showing them that though the Philistines may have defeated God's people, they haven't defeated God. And in that, what God really wants to show the unbeliever often is that he's not his people. And the, the things that you see that are all mucked up and very muddied and confusing about God's that are in God's people, God's none of that. And it's his own way of showing the unbeliever that. There's the good news. But then, ultimately, as you're aware of, the, the ark has now made its route around the Philistine cities, and the five Philistine lords get together, and they realize they're in trouble, and so they send the ark back. They do it by taking two cows, if you will, that have never been hitched. They've had babies, so their natural inclination would be to go and be with their calves. But the calves are taken away from them, and, the calves, and they put the ark on this cart, will become important as we get into 2 Samuel and 1 Kings. And what we find is that the ark, instead of the, contrary to their nature, though, instead of the, the cows going to their calves, they actually walk straight to Beshmesh, which is Israelite territory. And while the, the ark has now returned to the people, it's been gone for seven months. During those seven months, those are the seven months of reaping, by the way, in between the first fruits and the final fruits of the wheat harvest. And so somewhere in all of that now, the people have received this uh, the, the cows they've slaughtered, they're given as a sacrifice. But then this crazy situation happened last time, if you remember, at the end of it, where the people looked into the ark. And as they looked into the ark, 50,070 people died. More people died trying to look into a box than they actually did in both of the battles collectively that they fought the Philistines in, in the book of 1 Samuel. Now understand why, and that will take us into our text today. The ark that God intended, the place where he said he would dwell between the cherubim, was a box that was made out of acacia wood covered in gold that inside was to hold, according to Exodus 25, we'll see, to hold the law, which would be broken but stored. When God gave ultimately the Ten Commandments that we see, by the way, in Exodus 20, that those were to be put, but they were broken because by the time Moses was coming down with them, the people were already breaking them. In the box was the broken law, but on top of the box was the mercy seat made of pure gold, which God uses to reference our faith, because like in both cases, the fire ingenuinates it, proves it, makes it more malleable. 
But the pure gold that sat on it was not called the mercy, you know, sort of called the mercy anything but mercy seat or mercy throne. And the purpose of that is that was where God were to dwell, was where the blood of the lamb would be slaughtered and thrown across that seat. And that bloody seat would be the place where you sought the Lord. You did not seek the Lord in the box. You sought the Lord upon it. And what the people were doing at the end of 1 Samuel 6 as they were coming face to face with the broken law without the mercy seat. And there's our problem. Every religion out there aside from Christianity is about coming face to face with the broken law without the mercy seat. Without grace. Without God's shed blood on your behalf. Without the payment of your sins. Without the cleansing by His love without the purchasing of yourself through the, through the cross of Christ and the new life offered to you through His resurrection. Without that, all you have is you and the guilt that you stand with because of the broken law. And that's what we see there as the people die. And what happens is God has a lesson to teach both, I remind you. To the Philistine, He shows them what happens when they try to mess with God. Now understand, they may have defeated His people, but what's clear is God really made a mess of their God, Dagon. But when He gets back to Israel, when the ark, I should say, gets back to Israel, what's clear at that point is, is that God makes clear that he is actually not just different from other gods. He's different from everything. We would say he's holy. And, they, and often the way that God shows his holiness, to be honest, is in punishment, is in some form of punitive response. So the people of Beshemesh are like, well, wouldn't you be like, oh, I don't want the ark here. So they send it ultimately to Kirith Yiram. And that takes us to our chapter. In chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Then the men of kirith came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. It's important to note that he's not a Levite, at least that we have here, but we read that he was actually sent to Shemar, is the term. And it's the term that was used, by the way, when God placed Adam in the garden to tend and to keep it. To guard it is the term, Shemar. And that's what we have here as well. This guy was not serving the ark. He was guarding it. From what? Well, the last thing that happened was 50,070 people died trying to peek inside. I would imagine he's trying to keep people out from it. And as it's the case, we read then, So the ark remained in Kiriath Yiren a long time. It was there 20 years, and all of the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, please understand, when Hebrew is written, There are no starts or stops, no capitals. There are some end letters, like the letter Mem or Nun. But there's no punctuation and no spaces and no vowels. What an act of God it is to translate a bunch of consonants shoved together in a line with no starts or stops, and you have to figure out what words fit in there. Try that with the word orange and see how quickly you get it. The reason I say that is, is that when you translate it literally, this is what you're reading. Did the ark was there a long time? It was there, it literally there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The natural place to go with that is that the ark of the, of the Lord was actually in Kiriath Yiram for 20 years. But you're hinging the 20 years then to the ark remaining in Kiriath Yiram, not to the other side, wherein the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The reason I say that, and forgive me if this sounds confusing, prayerfully this will clear up in a second. 
is that the ark is actually going to be there in the house of Abinadab for a hundred years. That we know as we get into the text. Now, people that ultimately want to try to find fault in Scripture look for these particular places, but they're so busy looking for a fault, they don't see the answer standing, staring them in the face. This is what we know about the ark. When the Philistines took the ark there at Epinezer, they also went then and appears, according to, to history uh, and tradition, they seem to have destroyed all of Shiloh. That was, by the way, the tabernacle. And all of the other items that seem to be with it, which means that now that Israel, though the ark has returned to Israel, to Beth Shemesh, and now here to Kirith Yerim, there's no tabernacle to put it in. There's no Shiloh to find it in, if that makes sense. There's no sacrificial system. And the high priest of the day, Aaron's own grandson, if you will, this guy Eli, he'll, he's died, and two of his sons. Now, they're not his only sons, but they are two of his sons, or they're, well, one of the sons, Phinehas, Puncher, if you will, uh, I mean, uh, serpent mouth. He has a kid we know ultimately whose name is Ichabod, which means inglorious or the glorious departed. But he has a couple other brothers, too, this Ichabod, one of which then ultimately take the role of high priest. But the high priest and two of his sons have died in this battle. Well, the, the high priest through discovery of the, the battle. This is what I'm saying. Though the ark has come back to Israel. That doesn't mean Israel has, is victorious. For the next 20 years, Israel will still be punished and under the thumb of the Philistines. For 20 years, there's no tent to put the ark in. There's no seeking of the ark of God. There's none of that. As a matter of fact, pretty much the next time you're going to see this, to be honest, it's in 1 Samuel 14. Saul is already king. And what happens is he's, though not leading his group into battle, but his son seems to be taking on the Philistines. And Saul wants to know what the commotion is because he doesn't realize his son has escaped to start the fight. So he says, bring the ark to me. That's 1 Samuel 14. Ultimately, we know that it stays in the house of Abinadab because by the time David becomes king, which will follow Saul, in 2 Samuel 6, what we'll read is David says, go and bring me the ark, and they take it from the house of Abinadab. That's quite a bit of time from now. Ultimately, we know that it'll be there. Then David will build a tabernacle or a tent for this ark in 2 Samuel 6:17, And it'll stay in the city of David. That's the south side of, of Jerusalem, if you will. Until Solomon builds the temple in 1 Kings 8, when he takes the ark and puts it into the temple. So let me make that kind of clear if I can. The ark has been taken by the Philistines. It's now been returned, but there's no tent to put it in. It'll be in the house of Abinadab basically until the time of David, where he will take it then, put it in a tabernacle, and David's son Solomon will ultimately put it in the temple he builds. So what did they say for 20 years? Well, God really wants us to know what's going on here. Though the ark remained in Kiriath-Yerim for a long time, 20 years is not normally listed as a long time. The 20 years pertains to the second portion. While it was there, we might even say while it was there, as it was there for 20 years, all of the house of Israel finally lamented after the Lord. It took 20 years for Israel to start bumming out by the fact that they didn't have a tabernacle. That they didn't have a sacrificial system. 20 years of not going to church. 20 years of not seeking the Lord, 
20 years of being under the, imp- the oppression of the Philistines while the ark just sort of sat in a guy's house. How bad, the question we ask, how bad does it get? How bad does it have to get? But please understand, it says, if you will, we might say, finally, the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Please understand, in those 20 years, I'm sure they lamented. I'm sure they bemoaned. I'm sure they cried out, complained, pitied. When you are under oppression and something happens in your flesh and you find yourself feeling addicted, controlled, out of control, life stinks. There's no other way to put it that's nice. It's horrible. And at first, you hate it. You hate the feeling of feeling out of control. You hate the feeling of feeling helpless, of feeling weak. And if it just stays there, you sooner or later learn to live with it. I guess this is just who I'll be. The basket case. The addict, the crazy, drunken, violent, sexual, confused, whatever the term you put there that will fit you. But somewhere down the line, you get past just hating the circumstances if you've ever had any form of real relationship with God, and somewhere down the line, you get over yourself enough to where you finally realize, you know, all of this aside, I don't have a relationship with God anymore. What's happened to me? And it's like you can play the game and you can still go through the rituals, but there's a radical difference between that and really thriving in Christ, especially for us having the New Testament where we know Jesus came to give us eternal life and life more abundant. I mean, we're not just talking about existence. We're talking about thriving and vivacity. And we go, what's wrong with me? There's, there's got to be more than this. And I'm not thriving. And I'm not full of joy. And I'm not full of love. And I'm not experiencing those supernatural, radical things that I used to experience. But then again, those are symptoms. And what happens is, is that somewhere down the line, you start to realize the cause of this is not some event that made me mad, made me mad or bad or bitter or twisted or whatever. It's not that just, I, I'm predisposed now to these answers. It's that my walk with God sucks. It's terrible. And it took them 20 years to finally get to the place where they lamented after the Lord. And I don't know what it took. In those 20 years, they're being constantly oppressed by the Philistines. In those 20 years, there's no productivity. Israel's not flourishing. The camp is divided. The camp is isolated. And everyone goes to their own place in fear. Was it a song that they stumbled upon in an old playlist? Well, when they hear that song, they think, oh, I remember. 
what it used to be like when I sang this song with my heart. So the picture they saw. Was it a verse? After all the verses, they're like, la, 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 I hear this all the time. But some verse, they go, I remember when I claimed this verse as my own. And I claimed this God as my own. And somewhere down the line, you get past, I miss feeling free. I miss being happy. I miss being kind to people. I, I miss being level-headed or I'm, you know, all that. And you get to the place where you're like, you know what? I miss God. I miss praying in a way that is a dialogue. And I miss opening up the Word and expecting God to say something really great to me specifically. Or I miss coming to fellowship in a way where I just knew God was going to show Himself and reveal Himself through people around me and or me to them. I miss you, God. It took him 20 years. How bad does it have to get? I might ask, how long does it have to be? And you know what happens when we start getting there? We start finding all the reasons why we're here. Well, this person did this, or this event happened this way, and you know where I never saw justice in this situation, and I was wondering, where is uh, where's the real truth in this? And you you start looking at all these things, but you, do you see what that is? That's just a distraction. That's just a distraction from the real thing, which is your relationship with God is messed up, and that really needs to get right. But you don't understand. God's like, no, you don't understand. You ever share Jesus with somebody and all they want to do is talk about everything else? It's always diverted. Oh, yeah, what about, well, hold on, let's talk about you. No, let's talk about some priest and, you know, some crazy Irish priest 300 years ago that did crazy. No, no, no. Why? Do you know him? He's not alive anymore. Let's talk about you. And it's like this, it's this diversion. And you know when you're trying to impart Jesus upon someone, how they're dodging it. Well, we do the same thing. They're really, that's what I'm saying here is the Holy Spirit's going, let's get this to the cross and let's get this right. Let's get the relationship right. And like, But you don't understand. I've already given myself labels that are outside of this. And, and, and God's like, well, how long before you really just miss me? Because you know what happens when you, when you keep doing it and you don't miss God? You start thinking it's a joke. And you look around and everyone's a hypocrite now. Church is a joke. People are a joke. The Bible is a joke. Fellowship's a joke. Now, you may not say it like that, but if you're honest with your heart, that's the way it goes. And it's amazing because the same person that would have led the choir now is criticizing the singers. And man, songs poured out of you before. And now you're like blogging about what's wrong with the church, but not being seeking to be a part of the solution. Well, then you know what's going on here. So by verse 2, the people are actually to the point where they, they're, they're actually to the point where the cause is being addressed. But I want you to read verses 3 and 4 with me. And I want you to read them carefully. Because listen, Samuel is going to give his prescription, his diagnosis. Well, that's already been given here. But his prescription... And the people are going to respond in verse 4. 
And I want you to compare the two for a minute. This is what Samuel says in verse 3. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel. Then, because it took till they finally missed God. Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel. Hold on, before I go any farther, can I just say this? I remember reading as a younger Christian about the mixed multitude that left Egypt. And it's easy to go, well, there's the church, right? There's some people that are there because they're real excited. Some people, they don't even know what they're doing there. Some people were dragged by their mother, you know, and you kind of get that. But I remember the Lord pulling me aside and going, hey, Tony, Tony, this is you. This mixed multitude's you, not just the church. There's a part of you that really looks at me and wants me. I'll grant you that. But there's another part that looks back at Egypt and still has longing. And when I started to realize that, I started to see how merciful it was for God to kill the previous generation in me. To kill the, to kill the old man, to reckon him dead. But when I look at this and I realize that by verse 3, all the house of Israel finally came to Samuel... I start to realize what the problem is in me is that part of me wants to come and listen to the truth of Samuel. Part of me is still trying to figure out what not to do. And then I'll be honest, I I realize, and this has been my journey this week in this, how much I want the full blessings of God without the full investment of myself. Like I want all of me to experience his abundant life, but I don't give him all of me to, 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 for him to fill with the abundant life. And I, and I get this idea here that it's like, I, I don't know if I'm the only one here, but I'm really trying to be honest and transparent with you here. I feel like if, I'm anything, if you're anything like me, I want to get like all of the blessings of God's repentance I'm sorry, of my repentance for, that God would reward, but I don't want to give him all of my repentance. It's like I want my whole life to experience God's resurrected life, but I don't want to let it die. And I start to ask, how much has to die for me to get it on the positive side of this? To get to the place where I can function like a functioning addict versus thrive. And it's a scary thought how easy it would be for me to want total victory in my life, total love and total peace, but not willing to totally repent. It's like I'm living for shortcuts that don't really exist. It's like how much of me do I really want to be in love with Jesus? Well, logically, all of it. But practically, I'm not too sure that that's really where I'm at. And I should be. I want want to want that. So here's Samuel's advice. And my prayer is, is that all of you would come to the table right now. The married you, the working you. The you that travels the trains. The you that's here at church. You that's in your room alone. The you that stares at your screen and knows what you see. The you that makes choices that you know, whatever the choice is, you're doing it without anyone watching you. All of us has to come to the table here to hear this. 
Because there's a part of us that will take to the table. It's the part that we think is already going to say something and look good by nodding and so forth. But it's like, what about the part that really still hungers for Egypt? The part that's actually a brat that has no interest in anything but ourselves. And what's weird is we can almost think that God's jipping us because somewhere in all of this, we know God has so much to offer, but we're not kind of getting it. And yet we're jipping God because really in the end of it all, the reason is we're just not giving him all of us. So Samuel in verse 2 says this. He spoke to all the house of Israel. And he says, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreths from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Now, there are four things here that Samuel says would be required. Now, remember, Samuel, God tells us that God set up Samuel as a prophet of the Lord and he let none of his words fall to the ground. That means that what Samuel's saying is spot on. Now, let me put these four things out for a moment before we see Israel's response. The first thing he says is if you return. Return is the word shub, and it means to turn back. That's pretty simple. But did you notice it isn't just that you return, but you are to return to the Lord Not just to God, but to the Lord. Now, I remind you, when God stresses the fact that it's the Lord, that means that there is an issue with his lordship I need to reconcile. And let me ask you, how are you doing with his lordship? We're not just talking about the buddy, cool homeboy that gives us good stuff and makes our life nice and fuzzy, but the part where he tells us to do things we don't want to do. Or even, might I say, let's, let me take it a step beyond that. What about, because it tells us that all government agencies that God sets over us, that includes parents, that includes our bosses, that includes policemen, unless they tell you to sin, unless they t- demand that you do something against God's will, do we do it? Because... You've probably heard it said, we say it here often, submission isn't submission until you disagree. That's when you really see submission. How is my lordship issue doing with God? God's like, well, how are you dealing with my police? Christians should never be people slandering policemen. Hey, are there crooked ones out there? Uh, There are human beings, so yes. But there are also good ones out there. And I know some of those guys out there, some of them love the Lord, and they're trying their best to keep people safe. And the last thing they need are Christians bagging on them. Our bosses? Man, if our bosses are like, well, I don't want to hire Christians, but they're hiring you, then prove them wrong. Now, I'm not talking again about when they tell you to sin. If they tell you to sin, don't do it. But if that's the only hill you die on, then they know it must be serious. And the first thing is return. But did you notice, not just to the Lord, but with all your heart. This is not time to spin in circles. This is not time to cha-cha, step forward a step back. It is time for you To commit to returning to the Lord with all your heart. Remember that. Second, remove. We go from return with all your heart 
That's an internal decision to remove, deport. The word is sur. I like that word because it's like a sewer that needs to be removed. What is it that I need to remove? The foreign gods. Now, here's the interesting thing, at least as far as I can see in this, is that foreign does not have to be foreign to my culture. It does not have to be foreign to my friends. And it doesn't have to be foreign to me. The issue is, is it foreign to God's kingdom? Is it foreign to God's heart? Now, I make no qualms about this, and I'm not telling you this is a sin issue, because the cool thing about us as Christians is that we're allowed to disagree, especially on issues that don't involve sin. I am not a fan of country music. Some of you are very well aware of that. You're welcome to love country music and still go to heaven. As a matter of fact, it's one of the reasons I'm convinced heaven's so big. I write all kinds of music. You're probably aware of that. That doesn't make me special. Jesus makes me special. Jazz, rock, funk, whatever. But regardless of whatever music would be written, if we were fighting and locking in on a groove, and Hugo just had the bass line, and Daniel was smacking that snare, and he was convincing him that he was the alpha. And things were just nailing it down. And every one of us was kind of getting our, the chin was starting to move, and the body was starting to get like this. And you, you just know it was going to be like, Jesus! Something was going to start happening. And everyone's just kind of moving like this. And all of a sudden, right in the middle of that, Marcy jumps up and goes, and starts playing the banjo. Now, it isn't that I don't know what a banjo is. It's just very foreign to the groove that's being set. It doesn't belong in that groove. The same way that there are certain things you don't throw in your recipe, even though they're food. But if they don't belong in the recipe, there's probably a good reason for it. And the reason I say that is to remove foreign gods, to be honest, often will be things we're actually really, really familiar with. They're just foreign to the kingdom of God. There are things that don't play there. Now, what's interesting is what they do remove, and we read there, the asterisks from among you. The asterisks, by the way, were gods of sex. They were the female goddesses where people went and did all kinds of crude things to each other. That's right here. And I understand God's saying, look at that clearly doesn't play out. The sexual promiscuity thing does not play out in the kingdom of heaven. We want to make that really clear right here. That needs to be gotten. And God's like, let's just before you start thinking that isn't going to be that. That looks like another God to me because you are bowing down to that and not to me. Am I really willing to return to God in my, with all my heart? To the Lord with all my heart. That's a heart choice. He says it right there. Am I really willing? Well, how am I going to see it? Well, one of the things is you're going to start seeing is I'm going to start getting rid of stuff. You got a problem smoking marijuana, and you say, "Well, I'm not going to do it anymore." But you've got pipes all over your house. Sooner or later, they're going to need to go. Matter of fact, my recommendation is the sooner the better. Now is great. But then he also says this: three of four, ready. 
your hearts or prepare your hearts. The word is to ready. Kun. To set yourself up or fix your hearts. Notice the term hearts again. For the what? What's the term there? You tell me. What's the term? Fix your hearts to the Lord. Did you notice that? Not just, not just ready your heart for God to come and flood it with warmth. Not just ready your heart to have some cool experience where you get the tingles. I mean, in this room right now, in this little beautiful little icebox, you could be getting the tingles for a lot of reasons. Frostbite might be one of them. But am I really willing to say, look at, I want my heart ready for the Lord to establish His Lordship in my life. Because if I don't ready my heart for His Lordship, I will be quick to turn to a tangible leader instead. And that's exactly what we'll find will happen. The next chapter, people are already looking for a king. And you know why? Well, we'll see in a moment. And then lastly, serve, but not just serve, serve him, and not just him, serve him only. The term I would use is reduce. Avad, simplify, service to God. Well, I think it's interesting because it's a cooking term too, and I've learned this, right? Reducing means you boil the water out. So you've got something that's really thin and it's a lot. When you reduce it, you're cooking out the water so that what happens is it's reduced to something thicker and sweeter or more potent. You know, that's the idea. I love it when people, you know, one of the things I've loved about going to Italy is it's like they start on your dinner like before you wake up in the morning and you get up early. And they're singing and having a good time. And one of the reasons is they're reducing the sauce. You never seem to spill it on you because it's thick by the time it makes it to your plate. You know, and because it's been really properly reduced. You know why you thin it? You ever go to a place and you know it's like one of those cheap calves and you know you're going to take up the ketchup and you go, and it just comes out so quick because you realize what they did is they watered it down. Why did they do that? Because it's so they can make it go farther. So that they save themselves a little bit of money. They're chipping off the sides. They're shortcutting is what they're doing, right? Do you want to do that with your faith? Do you want to do that with the Lord? I don't. I don't want a watered-down, cheap, nasty, ketchup-souped walk with Christ. You know, good ketchup, it's like, you know, you hold it up like this, and then you, like, go on a cruise. And when you come back, it's just about time to hit your burger. That's when you know it's the real deal. And God should be able to do that. Our faith in His Lordship, not just His power, but His brilliance to trust that His decisions are best. And there's got to be some kind of really resolving to reduce my service to just Him. Not serving me. Because when I serve me first, what happens then is I'll serve God when it's convenient or when I'm convinced it'll immediately benefit me. But not when it's hard and I can't see the outcome, but I trust them anyways, it's going to be right. The truest acts of worship are often at times of total painful surrender when we don't even see the outcome, but we trust it's going to be good for God because God's smarter and he knows what he's doing. So listen, I return to him with all my heart. So say return. Thank you, the four of you. 
Second, then I remove. I remove the foreign gods. Remove. Third, I ready my heart for his lordship. Ready. So notice it's return, remove, ready, and then I reduce my service to one. Reduce. Okay, now of those four, which ones talk about the heart? You tell me, of those four. Return, beautiful, because I return to the Lord with all my heart. So that's the first one. And, and I ready my heart. Did you notice those are the two that are internal, and then there are two that are external. The two that are external is I remove my foreign gods, and I ultimately serve God. I'm gonna, I can watch you do that from an external perspective. Does that make sense? Now, look at verse 4. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Does it look like something's missing there? Which of those four does it not record? Which of the four are recorded that they didn't do according to this? Which ones are missing? The heart ones. Did you notice that? The remove and ready. Did you see that? And here's the problem. Samuel is talking to a group of people who, I remind you, are lamenting after the Lord. I miss God. And yet, though they miss God in this situation, Samuel says, well, let me ask you, do you want a temporary fix or do you want a cure? And the people are like, well, I just want to feel God again. I just want to get God's blessing again. But did you notice you're missing the relationship again? I want to be able to enjoy reading scripture and feeling it again. I want to, you know, be able to sing those songs with passion. Oh, that'd be good. But those are the product of the heart. But you can do them without the heart. But the problem is they will not last long. So what happens? Well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to re-legislate. I'm going to re-legislate my day. I'm going to make it one where I get it. I understand it now. Things are good. Okay, I'm going to go to church more, which I, I think is good. But if you don't ready your heart for his lordship, what difference does it make in that sense? And I'm not telling you don't go to church. I'm saying make the right choice. But it starts with this. Notice the two that really focus on his lordship are the two with the matter of the heart. Did you notice that? So where's my heart at? Do I really want to return to him? Do I want to reduce myself, stop serving myself? Well, Here's his promise, though, if we're willing to do those four things, and we're going to go to that tonight in a moment here. He says, if you do those, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. He will, natsal, and the word means rescue. If I'm willing really to genuinely return with all of my heart, not just part of it, not just the part that's tired of this or fed up or whatever, but with all of my heart, there's a resolution there. And I'm willing to remove, because of that, those things in my life that are God's competition. And I'm really to ready my heart for God's lordship. And really ready to say, all right, you know what? My life ambition is to serve him now. That he'll rescue me. From the Philistines. But if I think that the greatest benefit is God rescuing me from my flesh nature that seems to be dominating me, I'm still missing the point of the relationship. And there's my problem. So what do I do? I do those external things. That's what I do. So what do I do? I 
put away those things. And all right, I'm going to make resolution now. I'm going to get that filter on my Internet and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put away those things. I'm going to get alcohol on my house or whatever those things are. All right. And I'm going to get a church and I'm going to join the choir and I'm going to serve in some manner and I'm going to do all of that. But they're all outward. And that's why by chapter eight, we're going to be stuck again with this place where they're going to be asking for a king. The problem is the whole point of God being the Lord in verses three and four should say if, the, if that was with your heart, you wouldn't be looking for a king because you'd already have one. Now, I don't know what that king looks like for you. We'll get there next week. But could that king just be, I need this tangible, touchable person, thing, place, position, whatever in my life right now? Because what we're going to see is why the people do it. And the first and foremost is, to be honest, the kind of heart behind it all is, we just want to be like everybody else. We're tired of being different. Are you tired of being different from the world? Well, let me ask you, are you different from the world? Not just like you run around with like aluminum foil on your head or something, but I'm saying like, you know, that you're willing to do, look like Jesus in a place where that might not be popular. So verse 5, Samuel says no, and I'll pick up the pace here. But you can see this just can't be rushed. Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I'll pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, poured it out before the Lord, Panim, literally in front of God's face, fasted all that day, and said, we've sinned against the Lord. Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. And I thought, this seems like such a strange thing. I mean, Mizpah, I kind of get it. It's where Jephthah gathered all of his people together to battle. It was the people gathered together to destroy Benjamin in Judges 21. It's where Jacob and Laban met in regards to making sure that they know you don't go past this line, I won't go past it because neither of us trust each other. But pouring, gathering water, first of all, they had to draw the water, which means they had to go to a well, and they got water. And as they drew out this water, then they just poured it on the ground. What a waste. Seems like a strange metaphor, but it isn't. I get it. They drew this water out, and they poured it out in front of God's face, and then said, we've sinned. Huh. If I'm wasting it, what is water? What is water to a Middle Easterner? Well, it's three things fundamentally. It's life, it's refreshment, it's purity. It's water that gives life because without water you don't live. It's water that gives refreshment on those days when you feel weak. And it's water that cleans you. And you see what's happening here? Please hear me in this. Samuel the prophet, the spokesman of God, is saying, this is what sin looks like to God. You are wasting your life right in the face of God. You are wasting your refreshment that God gives you. That strength and that vigor right in God's face. You are wasting your purity that God has given you right in his face. And I know Psalm 62 and Lamentations 2 speak about pouring out your soul. But how rough would that be for God to say, I've given you these things for you to flourish. And you're just pouring them on the ground. It's not even... It's not even benefiting you like it should. Do you even realize how pure you are? 
Do you even realize how strong you are in me, God speaking? Do you even realize how alive you are in me? It's like you're dying of thirst, you're blaming me, I'm giving you the water, but you're pouring it out on the ground. And we look for living water. We as Christians, we of course attribute that to the Holy Spirit. It's like, but you're wasting. That's what sin is. So they fasted, and lo and behold, the moment that that happens, guess what? The Philistines see that the Israelites have gathered together at Mizpah, and they prepare an attack. You go, oh, come on now. Here I am trying to get right with God. Here I am trying to get this whole thing nailed down, trying to get the whole campus finally unified and finally complete in my conviction. I'm solid in all this. What is up with this? And God, I mean, God is he's sovereign. How in the world is he allowing this attack? Well, please understand what God's doing. See, remember, God's not just sovereign. He's not just omnipotent. In other words, he's fully strong and he's in control. But he's also brilliant. And I don't think we give God the credit for that. So when things happen and we don't get it, we think God's the one is the problem. We think somehow God didn't get it. Could you imagine how funny that must look to God? He's so brilliant. He's doing so many things at the same time. And I'm trying to inform God of something because apparently the situation isn't going my way. So probably the problem is God just isn't informed enough. Or he needs to hear my emotional plea a little bit harder. But man, the more I, I, at least at this stage in my life, the thing that's been so prominent in my my head is, God, I just need to see you as smarter so I can trust you more. You are so smart, you know what this is, you know what this is going to bear forth. So what happens by the Philistines preparing to attack? You know what it does? It allows me to determine how committed I am to this change. And it also cements my conviction. At a moment like that, you're like, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to hand this over to the Lord. And then you get an opportunity you never had before to do something wrong. But this was the golden opportunity. And you're like, wow, I can't believe this temptation's here. I can't believe this battle is here now. I can't believe my flesh is rising up at this minute. Of course it is. And guess how serious are you about this choice? Because if you're not serious, you're going to cave right away. Get back up, unify the camp, and hand it over to the Lord. So the children, they cried out. But notice it says, by the way, that when the Philistines heard this, verse 7, the children of Israel had gathered together in Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Now notice, by the way, and we, we know like Second Timothy 3, 12, where it says, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution in Christ Jesus. <laughs> but do you notice, now that there's unity in the camp to hand it over to the Lord, notice the primary sort of result of Philistines even gathering is fear. Did you notice that? Fear and anxiety are the first, if you will, they're the beachhead of the attack from the Philistines. And you're like, oh my goodness, if, oh, what am I thinking? If I really am fully handed over to the Lord, who's going to pay my bills? How, how, does, how dumb does that sound as a Christian? It sounds really dumb. My Lord, I know you're all powerful. I know you have the sheep on a, or the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't know how much that's worth. I just don't want to drive near it. I get all that. And I know you've, all the silver and gold's yours anyways. I know that. All the power is yours. I know that. All the earth is yours and the fullness thereof. I know that. But God, if I really hand my life over to you, Al, and I really would repent, what about this person? And what about this relationship? And, well, how am I going to, I'm going to totally just eat crow in front of people because I'm going to tell them I'm not who I thought I, you thought I was. Not to come clean. That's not easy. 
Yeah, you're right, it's not easy. But fear and anxiety, and what happens is then you fall in love with and you betroth yourself to that fear and that anxiety. But let me say something, and please hear this. Fear can either be your foe or your friend at this moment. It's what you choose to do with it. Because the same fear the enemy tries to throw at you can backfire. It all depends on where it takes you. That's the point. If the fear takes you away from the Lord, the enemy's winning. So you're afraid. Then go to the Lord. So you're anxious. Go to the Lord. You're like, well, I've had a rough day and I'm feeling anxious. I'm going to go and get drunk. I'm going to go and find somebody and have sex. I'm going to go and, and I'm just trying to be honest here. I'm going to go and just be nasty. I'm going to go isolate myself in my room. Instead of, you know what I'm going to do? is I'm going to go and get to the Lord. I'm going to let this backfire. This is a tool of the enemy, and I'm going to let it backfire on him. And you know that's what God wants to do in this. In this case, it does. When the children of Israel heard this, they were afraid of the Philistines. They've been oppressed for the last 20 years. Where were you 20 years ago? So the children of Israel said to Samuel, verse 8, notice the backfire, do not cease to cry out to the Lord God for us, our God. Notice, he is the Lord, our God. The Lord, because he's the Lord over everything, our God, because we're claiming him for ourselves, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Don't miss verse 8. Did you notice how they've been cured of the, of the it problem for the moment? They don't say, get the ark here, that it may save us. Now it is, you know, do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may save us. Do you see how that's graduated now? So Samuel took a suckling lamb, offered as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord, I'm sorry, to the Lord of Israel, for Israel, and the Lord answered them. So how did Samuel do? He says, like, look at this is what it's going to take, a burnt offering. And what is a burnt offering? Total surrender. You want total victory? You need total surrender. Now, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. Of course, the attack is going to be at the surrender, but so is the victory. <laughs> but the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day. Now, I mean, of all the things that God uses, do you think that's actually in God's artillery? In his bandolero, I get lightning bolts. I get the ground opening up and swallowing people. I get God splitting seas and closing up the water on them. But thunder? Thunder? Yeah, even thunder. You know what's really, really cool? Remember how this book started with a gal that couldn't have a baby? And she cried out to God, and then God granted her that promise. And then she sang this, if you will, gave this beautiful poem, sang this song, however you want to put it. And second, in 1 Samuel 2, Hannah says this in verse 10. The adversaries, our adversaries, sorry, of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. Isn't that radical? Hannah, the mother of Samuel, when seeing God's promise come to pass, says, oh, God will respond with thunder. And we see it throughout Scripture. Certainly in the book of Exodus, we see that in Exodus 9. We see it as he gave the law in Exodus 19. We see that the glory of God thunders in Psalm 29. His voice thunders against his enemies and against those things that God uses. Psalm 104, Isaiah 29. But what I thought was interesting was the last use of the word in Scripture. The last use of the word. Now we know about God's throne and the, and the, 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 um, 
the rainbows and the earthquakes and the thunders. But the last time I find this beautiful is in Revelation 19.6. It says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. The last thunder is going to come from us as we praise God and say, you really are almighty. Hallelujah. Interesting. Thunder is happening here and it discomfits or confuses or vexes the enemy. And they were overcome before Israel, smitten, beaten. Neguf is the word. Interesting. God took them down with thunder. The coolest part about that is the Canaanite God that they worshipped, Baal, was known for lightning and thunder. So God took it to their court and beat him at their own game. It would be like Hugo taking on the tallest guys he could and beating him at basketball. You get it. And it says in verse 11, and we're almost done now. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as Beth Car. Oh, beloved, don't miss this. That same thunder that struck the heart of the Philistines with fear struck the heart of God's people with boldness. And the only difference was what side of God you were on. The same way that fear could drive you to or from God, when you choose God and you really cling to Him, fear will only drive you closer to Him. And the same thing that used to scare you to death and frighten you and confuse you will now embolden you to victory. And they chased him as far as Bitchar. Why is that important? Because you probably know what Bet means, right? What does Bet mean? House. Car means the lamb. They chased him as far as the house of the lamb. And then it says in our last verses, So the Philistines were subdued. They did not come any more into the territory of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. Sounds like they belonged to Israel. Interesting. From Ekron to Gath. That, by the way, is the Gaza Strip. That area that the Philistines that call themselves the derivation of the, Pal- the Palestinians that call themselves Philistines. According to this, it belongs to Israel, for what it's worth. They recovered its territory, the hands of the Philistines, and also there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Amorites would be the east side, so God now has brought victory to the west and peace to the east. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and judged Israel all those places. But he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. That means heights, by the way. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Now, the one thing we missed was verse 12. They chased him and took him down, victory all the way to Bethkar, to the house of the Lamb. And Samuel took a stone, set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer saying, this far, thus far the Lord has helped us. Okay, now don't miss this. This is so cool. The last time they were there, the ark was being taken. 
they were losing badly. But instead of looking for the box, they looked for the Lord. And now God brought thunder of all things and gave them great victory. <coughs> and that place that was of great defeat, maybe that's for you fear. Maybe that's for you anxiety. Maybe, well, I don't know what it is. But I know that the, the real solution will be a right relationship with God. And then let Him start fixing you. And as that happens, they get to this place and they're like, we just want you to know, He has never failed me yet. And this is testimony. Why a rock? Rocks don't change. You can find rocks today in Israel, and they were the same rocks as back then. You can say, hey, look, that's the rock of this. And you're like, yep, still looks like a rock today. It's solid, stable, and unchanging. You know what's so cool? The last couple of verses, do you know what he shows us? Samuel, as a prophet, was solid, stable, and unchanging. He judged Israel all the days of his life. This guy was a godly guy. He kept this circuit. It was roughly a 50-mile circuit, but he always went back to the high place. That was where he lived. That was his home, was the high place. He always found home at the higher ground. And I can't help but think of Jesus. Though he would say, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It always seemed like the one place where he found home was in the higher ground. Because you know what happened there? It was there that he was intimate with the Father in prayer. There should be no place should feel more like home than that place where we're in the arms of God where we belong. Now, as we bring this to close now, notice it ends with Samuel building an altar. In this chapter, there has been a rock called the Menezer as a testimony that, this is, that God's always victorious. He always wins. He won even when we lost. But now that we chose God's side, we win with him. And then he built an altar and said, what is the altar? The altar is the place where you connect with God to make sure it's about relationship. And let me say that the whole point of this is to have a relationship with God. We don't do it through our strength, through our efforts. We do it first and foremost through the blood of Christ. God initiates, we respond. Always. You came here today, God has initiated. His word has gone forth. His spirit is convicting your heart and mine right now. And let me ask, are you willing with me tonight to return to the Lord with all your heart? Not just to the parts that seem okay or the parts that you want to see fixed. Put away that nasty, rotten stuff that doesn't belong. Say, so you know what? I have wasted I've wasted my breaths on foolish talk. I've wasted my thoughts on foolish thinking. Like pouring water out on the ground, I've wasted your refreshment, your life. I get it, your purity. But I want that to change now. And I want my heart ready for your lordship. Not just for your rescue, but for your lordship. I tell you, there are times where I look and I realize that I want to say to people, man, I'm sorry because 
when I was younger specifically, because I'm less in positions where there are people that you could say are tangible bosses over me. Uh, but there are times where I'm like, I just, I'm sorry that I didn't respect the authority because you were so human. But I always say, pray for the person and respect the chair. And it's like, God, I just want to, I know I'm accountable to you and I want to be responsible for those that are. Be that governmental. I mean, we're in a rare position. We get to actually vote people in or out, in theory. It's like, you know, I really want to, I want to be a person that people see. I want, a person, I want to be a person that my children see respecting authority because there's nothing natural about it, let's be honest. Especially because I should pay off because I want our kids to respect our authority as parents. That's not easy. Because we are raising free-thinking, intelligent girls. There's no doubt about it. But as we go to prayer, can we really make sure it's an issue of the heart first? Returning, readying our hearts for His Lordship? So that we can see remove in, in that sort of place where we reduce our service to Him and not just to thousands of things to try to please ourselves. And let him rescue us the way he needs to. But for the purpose is not for the rescue. The purpose is for the relationship. That's the whole death on the cross point. Is the restore relationship. The resurrection is his lordship. There's the point. So as we pray, I want to give a moment of silence first to let the Lord speak to our hearts. And you go, but, but what about those challenges I'm going to have? I know when I make these choices, there's going to be challenges. Sure, there'll be challenges. Let those challenges cement your conviction. To say this only proves. Because the choices you make at those moments, choices are what prove your convictions. You know that. And if you get anxious, let it drive you to the arms of God. Let it backfire. If you get fearful, let it drive you to the arms of God. Let it backfire. So that when the thunder comes, it doesn't make you shrivel. It doesn't make you confused or discomfited. It only emboldens you because you know whose side you're on. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. I want to thank you for what you've taught me in it, the way you've led me, challenged me. And I do pray, Lord, right now for myself, my family, our church family. I pray, Lord, that you would tonight Let there be an altar built in our heart. One that says your relationship is what's fundamental, not just in theory, not just here in church, but that you would tonight unite the entire camp of our hearts to seek you out. That we would not be more caught up in the circumstances and consequences than we would at baining over the relationship that we really should have right with you. And I recognize it's an issue of the heart. So for myself and and in everyone who wants to agree, right now, please let our hearts return to you. And really return. All of our heart, all of the camp, all of our life. Coming back to you where we belong. Not just you-ish. Not stuff like you, but you. 
And those things that are in competition, Lord, we'll see that we'll want those things gone because of where our hearts are with you. Because they're finally satisfied where they belong. We don't want to blame you. We don't want to be angry at you. We don't want to say, well, we don't understand something, so you're probably the problem. Forgive us for such haughty gestures. But rather, God, tonight, put us in that place where our hearts are readied, fixed, committed, set in motion to allow your preeminent lordship upon our lives. And there, as you do, Let our service be reduced to where we're not constantly everywhere, but we find ourselves serving more, not less, because we're serving you, not others. We're serving you. Now, people may be benefiting from it, but you are what's our target. You are the one in our eyesight. You're the one in our crosshairs. And in that, Lord, even tonight, even tonight, we pray, Lord, that you would rescue us from the flesh that wants to put us first. And Lord, those things that don't reconcile to your Lordship, they're foreign, mainly be foreign to us as well, and removed, forsaken. And for all the fear and anxiety, Lord, that could drive us to internalize, to implode or explode or isolate or insulate, but not run to your arms, God. Let from this point on, let it backfire and may it bring us into your arms where we belong. May it backfire on the enemy. And in that, Lord, let all the thunder that you reign, God, only inspire our hearts to great victory, to take back ground that we've given up. To stand in victory. We know this is the case. As Jesus died on the cross for us, we proclaim Him as our Savior. We recognize that. But as He rose from the grave, just like your Scripture promised, we declare Him as our Lord and let our hearts be readied for His Lordship. Please, even tonight, as you've cleansed us of our sins through the cross, May we celebrate our purity in you. As you've resurrected Jesus and now have offered us this new life, may we celebrate this life in you. And as you've poured forth your Holy Spirit upon us, may we celebrate that refreshment you've poured upon us in you. May it not be poured on the ground anymore but fill us to overflowing like you intend that out of us would torrent that living water, that we would become wells. In Jesus' name. Amen.